Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161AA50, Two Trips Behind the Iron Curtain, From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 152, August 5, 1987. This evening, Otto Scott and myself are going to discuss with Gary Mose his two trips behind the Iron Curtain, uh, especially his trip into communist Romania. Uh, today we are subjected to all kinds of propaganda which would reduce in the minds of the public the differences between the Marxist world and what remains of the free world, so that we are not usually told what is happening in those countries. The great evil of our time, to listen to many voices in the media, is simply something like apartheid or conservatism and supremely Christianity, because the world today regards Christ and Christianity as the ultimate evil. As a result, it is especially important for us to get a Christian perspective on the Iron Curtain countries. Gary, tell us about your two trips there, and um, then let's uh, get into some specific aspects of your travels. The two trips which I made, uh, one in 1985 and one uh, just recently in uh, May of 1987, were for the purposes of uh, bringing encouragement and uh, some relief help to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, primarily in Romania, where the suffering is very great, and also uh, to engage in some fact-finding. Uh, for the purposes of uh, reporting to the West in my writing and in discussions uh, of the true conditions there. first trip in uh, 1985 uh, was arranged by a Sacramento-based organization uh, known as Ministries Behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, the, uh, the trip was supposed to be... Uh, uh, supposed to look like a family vacation, and I was to take my family along. Uh, we loaded our Volvo in Sweden uh, with uh, uh, just a few of our own personal goods and drove through Europe to Austria to a base training camp uh, of this organization. And after a few days of training there, we uh, loaded the car trunk and the car top carrier with as many suitcases as we could possibly carry of uh, relief clothing, uh, medical supplies, uh, common items that are not available like soap and toothpaste and toothbrushes and uh, a few little treats also for our contacts there. Um, we were These things were supposed to be ours. We were traveling uh, incognito as a tourist family and if uh, questioned, we were to say that these items were ours. We were not to reveal our contacts. We were given very specific instructions with that in that regard. Uh, we got as far as uh, Budapest, Hungary, traveled through uh, 
several countries to find a circuitous route in. Uh, we got as far as uh, Budapest and met with a uh, Reformed Church pastor in Budapest uh, who immediately sat us down and told us that the situation in Romania had deteriorated so badly since the uh, leader of the organization we were working with had been there that it was just out of the question that we would take our children, uh, our family, into Romania. We also had uh, another young man traveling with us. <clears throat> we were very disappointed to hear this because we had come a long way. Uh, we were eager to meet the Christians in Romania and to deliver the relief supplies that we had carried. Uh, we prayed about it. And uh, after some time of prayer, the pastor came up with the suggestion that if Randy, the other young man that was with us, and I wished to go on, he would provide a uh, safe country home for my family just outside of Budapest in a small town. I was very reluctant, understandably, to leave my wife and four children alone uh, behind the Iron Curtain. So I... Uh, I pretty much just ruled that idea out until my wife said, no, I believe the Lord wants you to do this. And I was very proud of her. She agreed uh, without much money and very few supplies to stay in this country house by herself with the children. Herself with the children. And uh, Randy and I left in the middle of the night. We were advised that would be a good time to cross the Romanian border because the guards supposedly would be sleepy and the traffic would be low. We got within a mile of the border and uh, ran into a long line of cars waiting to cross. I guess everyone had the same idea, crossing in the middle of the night. It took us um, eight hours to cross that border. Uh, we were inspected three times, and in the course of the inspection, uh, came under great suspicion. Um, obviously, two men traveling alone with this great quantity of family clothes, most of which was winter clothes, and they must have been uh, 90 degrees out, and many mm -hmm. children's clothes. Uh, so it was very obvious uh, that we had something uh, in mind other than what we were saying we were doing. The, the story was that uh, we were just tourists, and we were crossing the border to a hot springs area in Romania to uh, soak our bad backs, and I, I did have a bad back at one time, so that was not a totally false story. Interestingly, uh, the night before we left, my wife uh, rehearsed us and started to just throw a number of questions at us uh, that we might be asked at the border, and we came up with uh, agreeable answers, the two of us, so we'd have our story straight. Um, we didn't lie at any time. Uh, but we were very careful on what we did say and how we said it. Uh, it was just incredible when we finally got to the border and were interrogated. We were asked almost word for word the questions that we had rehearsed the night before. It could only have been the spirits leading. Uh, we had our story down cold. Uh, they separated us and interviewed us separately, I guess in hopes of finding discrepancies in our story, but because we had rehearsed it so plainly, uh, we satisfied them that we were just a couple of tourist guys. We flattered them about their beautiful country, and uh, 
they uh, inspected my car very thoroughly three times and one occasion drove it over uh, a pit and went underneath the car and began to take parts off of the car and looking for contraband items. The things they were looking for were uh, weapons, drugs, uh, Western literature of any kind, and Bibles. Bibles were the, the primary thing to be looking for. After, uh, I say, about eight hours, we uh, finally cleared the border. We had a very short time in Romania on that trip, only 24 hours, but we made some very valuable contacts. We're just stunned by what we saw after crossing the border. Romania is a country that is just uh, totally devastated. I don't know how else to say it. It looks like a war zone. <coughs> Ruined buildings? Ruined buildings. Uh, nature itself is just uh, sad. It's, it's, as I say, almost impossible to describe. You have to experience it. Uh, the sun does not shine brightly. Um, the trees are uh, bedraggled. The animals uh, are uh, skin and bones. And uh, I might add that the primary means of transportation in Romania is horse and buggy or horse and wagon. What few cars uh, there are in the country are often just parked for the bulk of every month until the uh, ration of gasoline is made available. And then it's, it uh, costs uh, the equivalent of uh, 13 or 14 dollars a gallon. Oh my. So it's, it's impossible for most Romanians to have a car, and if they do, it's almost impossible to buy gasoline. We met with some... Uh, and yet Romania has oil wells. Yes, that's the incredible part. Uh, <clears throat> Romania is a very rich country in, in natural minerals uh, of every kind. Uh, young, this pastor's son in Budapest told me that uh, it could be a paradise, but it's a hell. Uh, apparently, all of the, or the bulk of the production, uh, industrial production, mineral production, what there is in Romania uh, is for export. It goes to Russia. Primarily, that's my guess. The only uh, agricultural crop that seemed to be thriving were vast, vast fields of marijuana. Marijuana? Marijuana. <laughs> uh, operated by the state? I assume so. Uh, all of the farms are uh, state farms or collective farms. and uh, I mentioned that to our Christian contacts there, and they, they were just incredulous. They, they wouldn't believe it. Uh, maybe, but, maybe they didn't recognize it. <laughs> They didn't know what they were harvesting, and many of the peasants harvested. Um, I know what it was. I didn't know so much know about it was, but um, my colleague was traveling with me as a convert from the drug culture, and we stopped and inspected the crops, and there was no doubt about it. It was marijuana. That's interesting, uh, your report on Romania, because we are given the picture that uh, Romania is a thriving, uh, semi-free state, a showcase of uh, Central European communism, and not a rigorous Marxist state like Bulgaria. Do you remember Fernderberg? Yes. Remember his comments? He was the yeah. former ambassador from the United States to Romania. And he reported that it was a desperate despotism in various reports that he sent back to Washington. And he was reprimanded for those reports. And he was told that it was not his duty 
to report on violations of civil liberties in Romania. It was his duty to get along with the ruling group and to make friends with them on behalf of the United States. And now, you know, Romania has just recently been granted most favored nation status. Well, um, it has for several years. Uh, as a matter of fact, years. just within the uh, in the last few weeks, uh, the Senate of the United States has passed a measure withdrawing that oh, most favored nation sta- status. Uh, and the primary reason was uh, the reports of religious persecution. Mm-hmm. I'm very encouraged about that. It's, it automatically expires. Uh, the ban mm-hmm. expires, I believe, in November, unless there's further action that will be reinstated again. I see. And I hope that report such as I'm making here will uh, will prevent uh, a return to that ridiculous uh, status for the for the country of Romania. The uh, the information which you cite, the glowing reports about uh, independence and uh, prosperity of Romania, is is just a bald-faced lie. Mm. It is uh, disinformation of the highest order. Um, that message is being uh, brought to the world for the purpose of encouraging Western ties mm. with Romania. Romania is acting as a, a funnel for Western technology and Western contacts, Western money mm-hmm. into the whole of the uh, Soviet bloc. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have this uh, very carefully thought out disinformation program to portray Romania as independent from the Soviet Union. It is anything but. It is, it is not a... Uh, a prosperous or a free country in any way. It is it is Stalinist. It is oppressive. It is repressive. It is brutal. Mm. Well, our ambassador was appointed by Reagan and resigned because he was not encouraged in his stand by this administration. He was chastised. He was yes. reprimanded. They called him back. They beat him up. And he, he was a young man. And he resigned. He ran for the Senate. Didn't make it, but uh, it ter- totally turned him around. He was a young professor, mm-hmm. and I believe when he went over there, he was pretty liberal. Mm-hmm. And he saw the devil. He came back. He felt differently. Well, I tell you, you see the devil when you go to Romania. Uh, you can travel through several uh, of the eastern countries, Yugoslavia and uh, Hungary, and and while they come nowhere near meeting the uh, material standards of, of any other country in Western Europe, um, you, you certainly don't feel the, the, the spiritual oppression and see the devastation that you do immediately when you cross the border into Romania. I don't know what the situation is in countries like Bulgaria and Albania. Albania hasn't been a Westerner there, except for a handful for some years, it's a totally closed country, and uh, what few reports leak out there, uh, uh, that place is, is really a hell. From descriptions I've read of the situation in Albania, I would say Romania comes very close. Is that, um, I'm stunned you... that they even let Westerners into the country, because you, you cannot mistake the devastation everywhere you go. Ceausescu, is that how you pronounce uh, it? Nikolai Ceausescu. Ceausescu. Yes. And he's got this big personality cult. Yes, he, he uh, portrays himself uh, as a modern Caesar. Romania, the name uh, yeah, is Roman, Rome. and yeah. its history is, is a, uh, of a Roman colony. Yeah, they always think and, of themselves as Roman. Right, yes. uh, and their language is uh, is quite Latin, yes. Latinized. Uh, 
so there are a lot of ties to Rome, and he, he considers himself a, a modern-day Caesar, and I think this is uh, really a mental delusion on his part. He, he dresses even. Uh, you see, uh, he wears uh, gold sashes. He actually carries a golden scepter. Uh, this is the most curious government. <laughs> it, it, in effect, is a communist monarchy. Uh, it's a dynasty. His, his son, Niku, is expected to succeed him. Um, well, which this does not is, please the Romanians because they expect him to be even more repressive than his father. There are a number of dynasties in communist dictatorships. In North Korea, mm -hmm. the son right. of the man who calls himself Kim Il-sung is mm -hmm. uh, slated to be the heir. And I understand that in the Soviet Union itself, the children of the revolutionaries yes. have all the privileges of the upper class. They've created a new nobility. Yes. Well, that's, that's very much the case in all of the communist countries that I visited. They are anything but a class, classless society. In Romania, for example, uh, uh, in the area of, um, of commerce, there are definitely two, maybe more than two classes, but I'll just, for the sake of simplicity, break it into two. You have the, the common people who are starving to death, you have the privileged class, which uh, shops in special stores uh, reserved only for them. Uh, they buy goods that are available only to them. And in many cases, they do not even use the country's currency. Uh, the Romanian lei is worthless. And uh, one of the things that really stunned me in my second trip to Romania was uh, discovery of the existence of a thriving American dollar economy it's not, it's not a black market economy. It's a, it's a legitimate, open economy. There are, in the, the tourist areas and the hotels and in other places, uh, shopping places known as the dollar shops that's painted right on the door, dollar shop. And all of the goods are pressed, priced in American dollars. How do the you average to, people get hold of American dollars? Well, any number of ways. <laughs> Through the black market, usually. Uh, tourists coming in. Uh -huh. uh, the privileged class uh, has access to foreign currency, even though the law uh, technically forbids Romanians to own foreign currency. I saw, I went into one of the dollar shops myself on a smuggling mission, which I can tell you about. <laughs> uh, but I saw Romanians with fistfuls of dollars going in, uh, buying oh, nice uh, Western and Japanese uh, electronic gear. And coffee. Coffee is a prized mm -hmm. item. That was, just to uh, tell you what I was doing there, that was the item that I was shopping for. You need a foreign passport, supposedly, unless you can bribe the clerk. My American, my uh, Romanian contact went in ahead of me, made arrangements, and, and provided a bribe to the clerk. Told her that there would be uh, an American coming with three passports, two American and one Swedish. And, uh, that I would be buying coffee, and he ascertained how much the dollars that I had would buy in coffee. And I carried out two suitcases full, two, two, two suitcases full of coffee. The reason I did this is uh, the Romanian people, and, and including the Romanian Christians, uh, spend much of their time scheming about ways to beat the system. And one of the the ways they do it is through the purchase of coffee. I bought the coffee with American dollars and an American passport, turned the coffee over to my uh, Romanian contacts, who then sell that coffee 
on the black market and for more and dollars. For more, well, yeah, dollars or anything they can get. Uh -huh. uh, if that, I, we brought a thousand dollar contribution from did, a friend of mine. Did you have to declare your money when you went in? Um, no, uh, you're required to exchange a certain amount. But not to declare how much you're carrying. No, we did not say how much we had. Um, this thousand dollars, if we had exchanged it at the official exchange rate, which is totally arbitrary, uh, we would have gotten approximately eight thousand Romanian lei. If we had exchanged those dollars, a thousand dollars, on the black market directly on the black market, we could have probably uh, gotten about forty thousand lei as opposed to 8,000 mm -hmm. official. Mm -hmm. However, by buying coffee, that $1,000 turns into 108,000 lei. Mm. My goodness. <laughs> so we were able to, uh, to aid a lot of Christians with that kind of money. And that's, that goes a long way. When you have 108,000 lei, the average Romanian probably earns the equivalent of, uh, oh, 50 cents a day to a couple of dollars a day, and uh, this kind of money will help a great deal. You didn't see very many fat people then. Well, strangely enough, you do, uh, you do. and I think it's probably uh, a factor of uh, a poor diet, mm. of bad nutrition. Uh, yes, you see a, a, an amazing number of fat people. I was struck by that fact. Mm. Not from eating well, I'm convinced of that, because... Uh, I was in a good many Romanian homes, and although because we were their Christian brothers and sisters and greatly honored being from the West, uh, they fed us well. Uh, we saw what they ate, and it was pathetic. They are on the verge of starvation. No Romanian gets uh, enough to live on uh, through the official ration system. The only way you do survive is to gain... Uh, additional ration coupons by cooperating with the secret police. And what they do is spy on each other. Mm -hmm. Everywhere you go in Romania, 25 people watch you all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is the way they earn enough to, to subsist on. If you travel into the, uh, the ordinary grocery stores, the, uh, the goods are just pathetic. I went into a meat market. There was nothing available in the meat market except slabs of fat and some large uh, bologna of some kind and I was told that the bologna was made out of fat and blood and it was it was so gross I could hardly stand to look at it and, and my contact said that uh, I think his words were your dog would throw up if he ate this stuff other necessities are just not available toilet paper something as simple as toilet paper we saw a line on a given morning uh, the toilet paper store was open and people lined up for two or three blocks to get their ration of mm. toilet paper. No, this is like wartime conditions. Yes. In my contact, I said there was a the favorite joke around there is uh, we don't need toilet paper because we don't have anything to eat anyway. Mm. <laughs> well, I understand they use any excuse to destroy a church. Yes. Uh, in the city we visited, Arad, in the last uh, three or four years, I think uh, probably three or four churches have been bulldozed. Um, it's usually uh, either said to be a mistake or 
that the property was needed for some other purpose and that the, the state would uh, re-erect the church in some other location. Of course, that's never done. Well, this seems to be a rule because the faith provides a vehicle for cooperative behavior on the part of the citizens. And any way that the citizens work together have to be destroyed. Yes. Yeah, that, that is very true. I, I observe that close hand. Not only are the Christians closely knit and uh, support each other in just beautiful ways that we just don't see in the West, the kind of love and charity that they have for each other, but uh, amazingly, uh, non-Christians also, um, the common people, cooperate with Christians. I was just stunned, for example, a neighbor, a non-Christian neighbor of uh, my main contact came over to visit while we were there, and uh, in the course of our conversation I learned that this non-Christian neighbor had a, who had access to a vehicle had actually made some um, illegal runs into Hungary to get Bibles and to smuggle them back. Now, it just stunned me. I asked myself, why in the world would a non-Christian risk his freedom and perhaps his life on such a mission? And uh, it became apparent that that it's so readily apparent to the ordinary citizens what is available in the Christian community. Even if you don't profess to be a Christian, they see something there, a love and a support and a and truth and, and realness in the Christian community. And they want to be a part of that in some way, even if they don't profess to be Christians themselves. What language did you use while you were there? Well, we spoke English. Uh, we had two English-speaking people and... Uh, and an evangelist traveling with me uh, was a Swede who did speak English. Uh, we did have a couple of contacts who were English speaking and served as interpreters. One of our contacts was a young lay pastor of the largest uh, church in Arad, who was a very talented young man and very fluent in English and, and acts as a, an interpreter for many visitors. In fact, his skill in English. Um, uh, got him a call from the secret police. He was, he's just recently been elected the head pastor of his church and will be ordained this fall. And uh, when that word got out, the secret police contacted him and asked him to cooperate. They wanted him to remain as pastor of the church, but to be a spy, uh, particularly on Western visitors. He was to use his language skills to make contact with Westerners, but then to inform the secret police on the activities of Westerners, such as we were, what they were doing there, what our purpose was, um, things like that, who our contacts were. And uh, this very courageous young pastor refused, and because of that has given up any hope of, of ever having any privilege, uh, which most, most Romanians dream about. He was offered everything, foreign travel, uh, privileges for shopping, you name it. He gave it all up and uh, is determined to bring revival to his church. Is there any uh, any way you could define the rulers of Romania, the ruling class? Do they fall into any category, culturally speaking? Ethically speaking? <laughs> Ethically speaking, I think I would have to uh, classify them with the mafia, probably. Um, 
I did not have, con other than the border officials, I did not have contact with any uh, officials. You know, one uh, man who was able to get out of the Soviet Union was asked in an interview if there was a mafia in the Soviet Union, and his answer immediately was, yes, its name is the Communist Party. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yes, I think it was Bukowski who was asked how many political prisoners there were in the Soviet Union, and he said 240 million. Mm -hmm. Very accurate, I think. Everyone is a prisoner. Only some are trustees. <laughs> right. Yeah, my, uh, my main contact in Romania is a Romanian Christian who has been severely persecuted, and, and he just breaks down into tears when he talks about freedom. He wants that more than anything in the world, and he, and he always chokes up when he talks about that subject. He considers himself a slave and a prisoner, as most Romanians do. And it was our country who, in the peace treaty at Yalta, surrendered Central Europe to Stalin. And not only at Yalta, Harry Truman threatened the Soviets with the A-bomb if they didn't get out of Persia, out of Iran, and they got out. He could have done the same regarding Central Europe, yes. and he did not. <clears throat> we had the world in our hand at that point. When you visit those countries, uh, you have all you can do, if you can do it at all, to forgive that kind of action, to, yes. see, to see the slavery and the poverty and the oppression that those people live in. Yes, and yet we continue to teach in the schools that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a great man and made an important contribution to world freedom. Albert, you, you're telling us during the break about the kind of emotions that this inspired. The first trip that we made, as I said, we were there for only 24 hours, so it was a very intensive experience. And in that time, we made close contact with uh, some very dear Christian brothers and sisters. Uh, in fact, it was so close that, that I would say I have never felt such a kinship, uh, such a deep love for a brother or sister in Christ as we, we experienced there. Randy and I were uh, just filled to the brim with this very intense feeling of love, a very emotional experience. And at the same time, uh, having these feelings of love for the Christians there, seeing the system that they live in, the persecution that they endure, the deprivation and the... Um, the destruction and disaster all around them in terms of uh, their material well-being filled us with such hatred. And I don't think I've ever felt such intense hatred also uh, for a system and for those who are responsible for it. And having those two very intense, very strong emotions uh, pent up within us, both that intense love and that intense hate at the same time, was enough to break us. And as we were driving out of a rod, uh, we were silent for uh, probably 15 minutes. And uh, as soon as we got onto the, the countryside, there was just a sudden release, and we both, two grown men, burst into tears. And I think we did not say a word, and drove probably for an hour and a half, uh, literally sobbing. Mm. Uh, it was a terribly draining and emotional experience. And that was all repeated on the second trip, uh, probably even more intensely because we were there for a longer time and saw even uh, 
more horrors than we saw the first time. And yet, the horrifying fact is that so many churchmen, including Billy Graham, go to Romania or the Soviet Union and give very flattering reports on everything. Yes, um, one of the things that I did in my time in Sweden was to regularly uh, monitor Radio Moscow broadcasts. And uh, Radio Moscow, I should say this ahead of time, uh, Radio Moscow exists for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's propaganda. Oh, yes. It, uh, it has news, so-called news programs. It has cultural programs. Even these are directed to the single purpose of propaganda. And so when you hear reports on Radio Moscow from American churchmen, and I, and I have with me tonight uh, a tape which I recorded from a Radio Moscow broadcast directly, an interview uh, with some American churchmen who visited the Soviet Union on an officially sponsored trip. I believe it was sponsored by the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, it was carefully arranged, as these sort of trips are, uh, the sites seen and the people visited are carefully selected. And uh, the interview is obviously for propaganda purposes. And, and it just uh, infuriated me, having visited Romania and other Iron Curtain, Iron Curtain countries and seeing the truth of the matter, traveling incognito, not a, an arranged trip, seeing the truth, and then to hear American churchmen willingly uh, allowing themselves to be used as propaganda tools. I'd like to play this tape. As I say, it was monitored from a great distance, and the quality is not always the best, although I think it's readily understood. Three Americans who are religious figures back home were no exception in this respect until they made a fact-finding trip to the Soviet Union and witnessed religious life firsthand. Here is what Charles Hine, a pastor of a parish in Wisconsin, has to say on this course. I observe, first of all, contrary to my expectations before leaving the United States, that uh, the seminaries and the church itself um, is very much alive, very active here, uh, in a way that I never even dreamed was possible. There are very many similarities between theological students. Um, there's a deep care for people, um, for their well-being, for their peace. Um, I sense here in the studies of the students a deeper respect of tradition and history. It seems to play a more major role in their studies, uh, going back to the patristic first century Christian writers. But besides that, they learn Greek and Hebrew. They study ministry, but in a different sense. Uh, American ministry tends to think in terms of social consciousness, taking care of um, psychological, physical needs, hospitals, running hospitals, doing hospital calling. Uh, I sense here a more spiritual attraction possibly because so much of the, the medical care is administered by the state uh, that the church can devote its attention to the spiritual needs of people. Like in the United States and any other Western countries, the church is separated from the state and the city union. The relationship between the state and the church has a long history. Right after the Socialist Revolution in Russia, it was one of the antagonisms as the church sided with the counter-revolutionaries. As for the present relationship, here is what Bruce Rigdon, a professor of church history at the McCormick Theological Seminary, has found. One of my impressions is that the word coexistence might be a useful word to describe the relations of church and state here. It seems to me that 
Soviet Christians, like other Soviet citizens, uh, have long ago decided to be good citizens of the state, uh, to act responsibly as citizens in the state, and so on. Um, as a result, well, we should say that to the listeners, uh, the Soviet Constitution, um, its newest version, but even older versions, guarantees uh, freedom of religious cult. It's true that uh, the churches are functioning now, uh, uh, and have been for a long time, um, as places where believers can go and can express their faith in common worship. There is a coincidence of Christian conviction, I shouldn't call it only Christian conviction, it's shared by Muslims and Jews and Buddhists and others, and Soviet foreign policy, uh, which, as I understand it, uh, is committed to a, uh, um, a dialogue with uh, the United States and um, does want to talk seriously about disarmament and so on. Under Krupp, the Americans not only visited churches, but also conversed with people, both believers and non-believers. Here's what Andrea Atomas, the director of family ministry at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, has to say. We visited the Theological Academy at Sikorsk. We also visited the Academy at Leningrad, and we spent time at the Theological Seminary in Odessa. I rejoice at the fact that so many churches are open. The people seem to be very joyous in the celebrations of the liturgy. We conversed with seminarians. Also, we've had an opportunity to, simply in the matter in the matter of greeting of people with whom we attended liturgies. We did find the the believers in the churches to be very warm and open people. And when they discovered that we were from America, they were. I, ecstatic you know there were there were embraces there were kisses there were tears in some cases too and uh, we wished them as best we could in our broken russian that uh, peace would be with them and i was asked because i will be going home and reporting on my own uh, much of what i have seen and experienced i was asked what would be my first words and i said to someone who identified himself as an atheist that my first words would be Soviet Christians want peace and he said to me would you please change that to Soviet, all Soviet citizens want peace and this too was a discovery for the Americans Charles Payne summed up his observations in this country in the following way three basic observations first of all the church is alive as well in the Soviet Union it doesn't exist underground people worship in cathedrals I was amazed to see the thousands of people in the churches and uh, people are free to attend churches I would not have expected that before I came generally uh, more religious freedom here than I would have expected before I came second of all that the Soviet people are a people who have suffered and we recall that 22 million Soviets lost their lives in the second world war 40 times as many as Americans that type of suffering every family being touched by a death uh, I don't think we're aware of in the United States and I think that's a very important message to bring home that this is a people who has suffered and yet is strong in its suffering I wish that every American could come and stand could have come and stood next to me in Leningrad and seen those graves because it would have moved them and uh, it would make that's the third observation that this is a people who is committed to peace um, it's understandable. When 22 million brothers and sisters die in a war, you don't want to see another one. I learned the Russian word for peace, mere, and I see it everywhere. And the other thing, uh, we met with some people in the churches. Uh, on one occasion, uh, we were walking out of the church in procession, 
and uh, one of our delegation turned to one of the babushka and said to her, Mer- yeah, and said to her, Mereshvami, peace be with you. And she smiled. And they talked, and our delegation, uh, the member of the delegation said, I am an American. And the woman cried, because it is American, an American wishing her peace. I've only been here two weeks, but I'm, I have been impressed that this is a people committed to peace. I did not know that before I came, and I see it as part of my mission to talk to whoever I can and let them know that the Soviet people are committed to peace. I think that's a very interesting anecdote. The poor woman cried because she saw Americans over there cooperating with with the despots. Yes. Those people were, of course, modernists and liberals, but what excuse does Billy Graham have who pretends to be an evangelical? Yeah, that's a good question. The pastor I mentioned in Budapest uh, was very angry about... uh, Billy Graham's visits to his country, and I believe in 1985, and also to Romania. Um, he w- he feared, and this was before the visit. Uh, he feared that the same thing would happen that happened in the Soviet Union that Graham would come back and give a glowing report of religious freedom, and uh, and because of that, uh, Christians would suffer suffer even more. They'd be forgotten <laughs> by uh, Christians in the West, thinking that all was well, and. Uh, things would be worse for them. I don't believe we saw that kind of report from Billy Graham during his visit to Romania, or after his visit. Um, Of course, uh, the Christians there are just happy to hear a famous man preach. Incidentally, uh, one of the churches we visited in Irad was the church where Billy Graham preached, and uh, we ministered to about 3,000 Christians on one Sunday there. And uh, my Swedish evangelist friend who preached uh, brought a very biblical message and was well received. One man said he preached even better than Billy Graham. Mm. I would like to comment a little bit on this uh, this recording from Radio Moscow. Uh, as I said, because it's on Radio Moscow, you know right at the outset that it's propaganda. Um, you. Yeah. If you listen carefully to that tape, you heard several references to things like uh, faith, belief, um, worship, but at no time did you hear any reference to God. Of course, that would be against the official Soviet policy of atheism, so there is no reference to God. Or to Christ. Or to Christ. And when you listen consistently to uh, Radio Moscow broadcasts or read uh, Soviet publications, um, after a while you start to identify certain uh, common propaganda themes, catchwords and themes. And uh, just listening to this cold without having the experience of, of uh, prolonged exposure to propaganda, you wouldn't identify that. But I had that opportunity while living in Europe. And in this uh, short interview, I identified several of these very common propaganda themes. One, for example, was the uh, frequent reference to peace. Uh, Another catchword was coexistence. Uh, Another uh, was the uh, commitment, so-called, the supposed commitment of Soviet Christians to Soviet foreign policy. And that is an earmark of a propaganda statement there. Um, And then, uh, 
one of the most subtle ones was the uh, statement which said that the churches and the seminaries which were visited, which were carefully selected, were tending to the spiritual needs of the Soviet people. Now that sounds wonderful to us until we understand what is meant uh, in the uh, communist jargon and propaganda by the term spiritual. You have to redefine that word and when you understand that you realize that uh, the, the churches are in fact serving the purposes of communism and the communist regime. And if we, if we could, I'd like to play a, another sh short cut yeah. or two from Radio Moscow. I want to prove that point, that, that when the Soviet communists talk about spiritual needs, they are not talking about uh, spiritual needs as we Christians um, in the biblical faith in the West understand that term. The term spiritual to the communists means communist doctrine. And this cut, I think... What this is is taken from a summary of the recently adopted um, Soviet Communist Party plan for the period 1986 through the end of the century. This is the official party program. In the area of spiritual life, it means further strengthening in Soviet people's minds the socialist ideology, the spirit of collectivism, and commonly mutual assistance, giving the broadest sections of the population access to scientific achievements and cultural treasures, and molding an individual of all-round development. The result of these advances will be a qualitatively new state of Soviet society. A historic step forward will thus have been made on the road to the higher phase of communism. Perfect. I think that proves yeah, beyond the shadow of doubt from absolutely. the communists' own words what they mean by meeting That's the spiritual, spiritual. needs of yes. the people. And, and when you go back to that interview with the churchmen, what they have said now is that the churches, uh, the officially sanctioned churches, the ones that they visited, and the seminaries, the sanctioned ones, the ones that they visited, are serving that purpose, that spiritual need, advancing the cause of communism. Now, it's very interesting in view of that explanation that the American clergyman managed to put everything in the phraseology of the Soviet Union. That's right. That's because right. ordinarily you would expect clergymen to mention God, to mention Jesus. Not this type of clergyman. Yes. They're dedicated to the same purpose here, so they right. were very much at home in the Soviet Union. Their voices so, certainly sounded that way, didn't yeah, they? Absolutely, and if you listen very carefully, if we had time we could play it again, but I think you would detect at least two instances where you could actually detect coaching. Mm. Uh, a person, one of the speakers, uh, stopped and spoke to someone, mm -hmm. uh, apparently had been reminded what to say, and that oh, of yeah. course is, uh, is always the case. You don't get interviewed on Radio Moscow unless what well, you're going to say has been pre-approved. Phil Donahue went over there and interviewed the man on the street <laughs> as though the man on the Moscow street would say something his government didn't like. Right. Well, you mentioned the use of, uh, of terminology by Westerners and, of course, uh, the communists themselves pick phrases and words that have reaction here in the West. They know what kind of words people react to. One of those is morality. 
the communists make a great deal of their communist morality. And I have one more short cut here from this same summary of the uh, Communist Party plan, which defines Soviet communist, international communist morality. And uh, if there's any doubt that communist morality and humanism are one and the same, this uh, actual live cut from Radio Moscow broadcast should dispel that notion. The creative potential of the communist morality is being revealed fuller and fuller in the conditions of this society's gradual advancement towards communism. Our morality incorporates both the simple moral values of human nature and such norms of conduct by people in their relationships that have been produced by the masses of people in the many centuries of struggle against exploitation for freedom and social equality for happiness and peace. The communist morality that the Soviet Communist Party is out to affirm is a collective one to which egoism and selfish interests are alien and in which the interests of all the people, the collective and personal interests, are harmoniously blended. This is humanistic morality. It spreads genuinely humane relationships between people those of comradely cooperation and mutual assistance, well-wishing and humaneness, it is active and vigorous morality that encourages man to new accomplishments in work and creativity, to an interested participation in the life of the collective and of the whole country. You know, this is a good point at which to answer a question one of our listeners, Rick Corliss, raised about what is the meaning of dominion theology. Well, what these people are affirming is the necessity of communism, of humanistic morality to exercise dominion over the world, to prevail in every sphere of life and thought. Well, Christian faith requires us to exercise dominion over every area in the name of Christ, to bring everything to captivity to Christ, because as he teaches us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is Christian dominion. And what we're facing today is a conflict between humanistic dominion theology and Christian dominion theology. And these Christians who go over there and play the role that the Marxists want them to play are anti-Christian to the core because they are renouncing the necessary dominion of Jesus Christ for well, the dominion of man. They're traitors. Yes. That's the word that I use generally they're, speaking. They're about traitors. Issue. They're traitors. Yes, they're traitors. Mm -hmm. And treason begins intellectually. Right. Yes. It has to. It begins with a uh, mental rebellion and rejection, and then it leads into all the overt actions. Well, the point you make, Dr. Rustuni, is very valid, that, the, that communism is the exact reverse yes. of the Christian faith. And because it is, uh, it's fair to say, and it's very honest and truthful to say, that communism is nothing short of Satanism. Yes. It is the reverse of and the Christian faith. Any pastor who cooperates with it or is ready to soft-pedal its implications or to flatter the communists in any degree, whether he calls himself an evangelical or reformed or modernist, it, 
is serving the devil. That's exactly right. And you can feel that and you can experience that when you go there firsthand. You can feel the presence of the devil. Um, both of my trips, um, when, you, when you come out, you, you feel a burden, a spiritual burden lifting off you physically. You physically feel a, a burden lifting off of you. Well, yes, uh, I've read it's, that it's people who have got onto a, a, a plane in Moscow and fly out of the country break into cheers when they cross right. the border in the uh, air. I just read an article in the International mm -hmm. Herald Tribune by a, uh, a journalist named Richard Reeves interviewed a group of uh, teenagers who had been to the Soviet Union and they made the same observation. Uh, they felt oppression lifting off of them as they lifted off from Soviet soil. Well, Astor Wormbrand, who yes. left Romania some yes. years ago, in a recent book on uh, Karl Marx, uh, calls attention to evidence in Marx's writings about his worship of Satan, and that there was a Satanist cult in Moscow, of which Lenin and others were members, and that the translators of Marx's works, who have the originals there in Moscow, will not translate certain things because they are too openly Satanist. Yes. Well, if you read Lenin's writings also, you, you identify... I mean, he was very blatant about it. He didn't uh, make it subtle like these uh, propagandists do that we've heard. Hmm. He, he came out right and said it. Uh, his opposition to religion was blatant. Um, the, getting back to this tape, the definition of morality the key to that, the heart of that definition was morality is whatever serves the cause of Service the communist the re revolution and the state. Yes. And that, of course, is pure Leninism. Yes. Well, you know, it's interesting. Mr. Lenin was five foot three. Right. Five foot three. Stalin was so short that when he reviewed the troops from the top of Lenin's mausoleum, he stood on a box. These are all very small men, and it's interesting that they're always portrayed as giants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I traveled in several countries, and of course you come across the heroic statues. Yes. Um, they're always placed in uh, what you might call the progressive areas of the country. Uh, a, new, a new building is up, they put a statue there, so yeah. the identification, of course, is always progress is due to the communist uh, system. Then you go two blocks and you see what the real world really is. <laughs> you mm -hmm. don't you don't see any statues there, um, but always where the where the, the evidence of material progress is, and there are a few modern uh, installations. There you see the uh, communist propaganda. It's interesting to me that this effort to eradicate Christianity is not paralleled by efforts to eradicate Mohammedanism. Yeah. It, they're not out. They're not sending Buddhists to the gulag. No. But Christianity. Yes. Now these are men who learned <clears throat> about revolution from being in a revolution, and therefore they know every one of the avenues that leads to a revolution. 
They know that the antithesis, the exact opposite of everything they are, is Christianity, biblical faith. And that's why they are hostile to it. And yet, the Christian community of the United States, Protestant and Catholic, has never issued a single unified statement on this subject. No, the average pastor, and I'm talking now about the man who professes to be evangelical, is ready to accept the world as it is. All he wants to do is to add a little Christian whitewash to it, a profession of faith, which is meaningless. So it's the world plus Christ. And that's impossible because the opponents of the apostles saw exactly what the faith meant. They said, these are men who turn the world upside down. Of course. And any pastor who thinks he can add Christ to the corruption of this world and call it a Christian is a fool. Probably not a fool so much as a coward. Well, he's a dangerous man. Well, yes, because he helps the enemy. Yes. The, uh, we, we, I think we've seen in, uh, in these tapes and, and also my personal experiences uh, that, uh, that religion is being used overtly by the communists worldwide, uh, particularly in uh, Central America where religion is very strong. It might well, be the obvious vehicle to employ. The loss employ. of Spain taught them. Right. They lost Spain to the Spanish Catholicism which, like other national brands of Catholicism, is peculiar to itself. But it was quite a lesson, and it was quite a shock, because they actually had the government of Spain. They owned Spain. Mm -hmm. People don't seem to realize that, and they lost it. So ever since then, they have worked inside religion. Yes. Well, our time is almost over. Do you have a last comment or two that you'd like to make, Gary? Well, just very briefly, I think I'd like to issue a warning. Uh, as I said, uh, this uh, material that I presented this evening, I think, shows that at least in the area of religion, uh, that the cause of Leninism is being served. Uh, expedience, uh, morality is whatever the state wants it to be, and whatever serves the purposes of the state is, is moral. And that, as I said, is, is Leninism. And I think that the West has got to wake up to the fact that the ruling philosophy in the Soviet Union and throughout international communism today is Leninism. Not so much Marxism anymore, certainly not Stalinism, although you find uh, Stalinistic uh, tactics in Eastern Europe and throughout the Soviet Union. But the ruling philosophy is Leninism. Uh, it's deceptive. Uh, disinformation is the, the key tool. So when we hear about glasnost, openness, and all the marvelous changes going on in the Soviet Union, just be warned that what you're hearing is a lie. Mm -hmm. It's an out-and-out -out lie, and it's calculatedly a lie. That is the Leninist approach. Incidentally, that definition that you gave is exactly the same one as is used to define Nazism. Mm -hmm. Well... Thank you for listening. Our time is over now. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.